This is good. It's morning. It's sunny. We're going to eat breakfast. And then we need to sit down and talk. The three of us. We've all made mistakes. We need to get things out in the open. We need to establish a dialogue. We need to talk about our feelings. Got any cereal? Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid and the only podcast to know that you are not sated until you've been quaded. I am Jeff Lund, a paperboy trolling someone on house arrest, and with me as ever is your co-host and the only name in the podcast business who can do it all on a roof, Sarah D. Bunting. Hello, just highlighting my cigarettes. And that voice that we are pleased to have joining us is an old friend of mine. He is the co-host of the very funny I Don't Even Own a Television podcast. Please welcome Jim Varney's chest double, Chris Collision. <laughs> uh, howdy, everybody. Oh, uh, I'm welcome. really glad I got the day off the photo quick uh, to be here. <laughs> I'm glad you could visit us on leg day. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, so welcome. Uh, th thank you for being here. And uh, thank you for venturing into the world of Quaid. Uh, are you very familiar with this universe or is uh, have wow. you eschewed Quaid? Uh, you know, I, I would describe myself as a, a Quaid hobbyist, uh, mm. especially in, in this company. Um, you know, I, I do listen to the show. I've listened to every episode except The Big Easy, which I'm sort of holding in abeyance uh, because my girlfriend and I happened to watch that movie when we were in New Orleans, by the way. Oh, boy. Uh, so I'm, I'm waiting to listen to it with her. Um, well, you know, dancing there is a way of life. <laughs> yeah. You know, we just went there looking for a little something extra, if you know what I'm saying. Um, he means butt stuff, folks. <laughs> It's a European culture. Share. <laughs> uh, so, you know, like, if you ask me, what do you think of Dennis Quaid? I'm like, he was incredible in Breaking Away. He was great in The Big Easy. And then I kind of peter out. And then you say, inner space? And I probably change the subject. Does that does that sufficiently outline my Quaidiosity? I think so. That's a weird trajectory. But understandable, like it's legible to me. It's just uh, unusual, I would say. Yeah, I think that's fair. But like, you know, I, I don't watch every movie. Um, did this just end his career to jump ahead? No. <laughs> For like five years? <laughs> no, your podcast partner is going to be on next week to talk about the movie he did right after this. He, uh... <laughs> yeah. We're, uh, but we're... did that come out in like 2001? Sarah, do you... He's picking on your man here. Uh, do, you, do you want to fight him? <laughs> After the Patreon episode we just did involving his music, which I'm going to be angry about for a while, even things that rhyme with Quaid. <laughs> oh, you know what? Let's do. Let's think about mutual aid. Fuck off. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't feel stepped to in this moment. Um, I think the answer is that he started doing a lot of TV mm. and... Then there's this business with his wife, who's half his age. But anyway. Now, before we get into this movie in particular, which may or may not have been a career catastrophe, we'll we'll find out. Uh, did we have any pod business that needed to be taken care of, Sarah? I don't believe so. I still have not confronted the Denisons. Chris, did you were you willing to uh, 
to brave that to get a more holistic view of Mr. Quaid? Or did you just skip that one? You know, um, I blush to confess that I'm not as interested in the the cultural Quaid. I'm a little <laughs> more intrigued by the, I guess, religious and institutional aspects of Quaid. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm kind of passing on the denaissance and waiting for the uh, denformation. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Wise move. Uh, with that groan, we segue into <laughs> 1993's Wilder Napalm, which uh, stars Deborah Winger as Vida, Dennis Quaid as Wallace, and Arliss Howard as Wilder. A very brief plot summary here. Wilder, Arliss Howard, is a put-upon middle-aged man who works in a photomat booth in a dead strip mall listening to Moon River over the loudspeaker day in and day out, waiting to go on a call with the local fire department, which is routinely dispatched to his home because his pyromaniac wife, Vida, Deborah Winger, is so horny that she needs sex multiple times daily. And here's where the reality part of the plot really falls apart. But anyway... (laughs) His brother, Wallace, Dennis Quaid, however, is a carnival clown looking to make his way to the David Letterman show. There's just one twist. Both of them can manifest and project fire via telekinesis, and one day in their youth that power led to a horrifying accident and sometime later burned off Wilder's hair. One day Wallace's carnival comes to Wilder's own dead-end parking lot and a stalemate over a circuit breaker ensues. Wallace reveals himself solely to humiliate and troll his brother and eventually fuck his wife. We learned that Wallace burned Wilder's hair off during his bachelor party because Wilder, quote, wouldn't fight back. And that's probably as far as the logic goes. Wallace and Vida doink on top of a trailer. Wilder melts down and does donuts around it in a rider mower for hours. And then Wallace forces Wilder to get into a firefight that burns the trailer because it's good for him for some reason. Despite Wallace seeming like a demented sadist and Vida seemingly utterly unconcerned and unremorseful for doinking her husband's brother, they all live happily ever after, played off stage by doo-wop firefighters because director Glenn Gordon Karen's youngest favorite musicians are Dion and the Belmonts. <laughs> and that's it. Uh, extremely normal movie, then, yeah. is what I got from <laughs> what you Written just by said. Vince Gilligan? Yes, yeah. What the uh, southwestern so, fuck is happening? Never should have let that guy off the island. I, I saw I saw his name as the writer and Glenn Gordon Karen as the director, and there was a chance that it could be absolutely sublime and overlooked. But mm-hmm. no, there's a reason why it made eighty four thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> now, now is that opening weekend or is that that's release? Like, what were its multipliers? I'm sorry. I read that Uh, as 84,000 lira. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. uh. Turkish lira. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I I was also struck by the Vince Gilligan credit. Um, You know, in 1993... I don't think that was yet a name to to conjure with or brandish. Yeah, it was Um, pre his X-Files stint. Long before, you know, uh, any of the the later prestige stuff, obviously. But that comes about three minutes in. But the three minutes that happened before that are also kind of jam-packed with surprises, you know. So right up through the credits, you can still believe that there might be a little bit of magic. I mean, you've got Jim Varney in a non-earnest role in the first Mm -hmm. three minutes. Uh, You've got this incredibly weird, off-putting tone from Mm -hmm. right away. Like, what if dark comedy, but not one person with comic timing, I think? (laughs) Uh Uh, And and there's no wit or or anything else uh, that contributes to it being funny? Yeah. 
I mean, we're going to get into this later because I think we're going to try to, you know, do our overwhelming positivity thing with some comedy bits that we thought did work. Mm. But this, I mean, this is so, so, so a product of its time in all the bad ways, just like the aggressively um, acid candy production design, Mm. the aggressive quirk, um, manic pixie dream winger. And the other problem is Vince Gillian once said that even the worst TV and movies that you ever saw were, quote, miserably hard to make. And I I always try to think of that when I'm about to shit on something, which is usually. But um, this struck me as like, this would have been a sort of um, okay to cute New Yorker short story that could go Mm. in the Coyote v. Acme section, maybe. And they didn't know that it was only that until they made the whole thing, maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trying to find reasons to forgive the movie because it's not an enjoyable two hours at all. Mm -mm. There's a lot of pieces in it that almost work, I think. Some of the ideas are pretty good. Like, there's a lot of classics. I I was struck watching this as I was um, when I walked out of the theater having just seen Van Helsing, where (laughs) I, I, I turned to my friend and I said... That was terrible, but I'm not mad at anybody in it. Yeah. Here, like, Deborah Winger is is putting some back into her work. Arliss Howard has moments. And, you know, Jim Varney is is great, uh, possibly underused. The less said about the singing fireman, probably the better. But just grotesquely miscast, misused um, Dennis Quaid, I could almost be mad at in this. Yeah. Well, and the fact that, you know, as kids, they killed a guy. But yeah. but this is Hilarious. just going to be one of those, like, cute stand by me things that happens. Like, even stand by me understood what it was dealing with. Yeah. Well, they didn't kill the guy in stand by me. Yeah. Either. <laughs> also, it's based on a story <laughs> right. called The Body. Like, to you know, sometimes yeah. people yeah. understand where the focus is and sometimes they don't. If I hadn't seen the name Vince Gilligan, I probably would not have thought of it. But if you strip out all the whimsy and the the sort of time eating walking by the railroad tracks and look at how, you know, like, <laughs> isn't this vaguely European? The sad man goes to work again. Mm-hmm. It, it would be a probably pretty good X-Files episode. In fact, there were a couple X-Files episodes mm. that had a similar vibe of like dueling family members with powers. Yeah. And I, I kind of feel like working on that series kind of hacked some of the the dead weight off of off of his work. I I mean, I think this absolutely is a pretty good X-Files episode, not a short story, but like that it that is a short story. So, yeah, that's a more apt comparison, but boy, like this is this is a lot of twee and it's not yeah. supported. And it looks, you, you mentioned the production design, which was a really good call, but it also looks as crummy as an early season X-Files episode. Like, <laughs> there's a Technicolor <laughs> yeah. bug at the end of the credits of this, but everything just looks really gray and I don't know. Yeah, mm. it's bad. And th- like you were saying before, Chris, things like almost work, but then because they miss by a little it's like they missed by a mile 
Yeah. I, I don't know if that right. makes any sense, but the, yeah. Oof. The thing for me that, that I think really kind of drove that home was watching Quaid miss the mark as a clown and then hit the mark as a clown. Because when he hit it, it was like, you could see this person could be goofy and charming, but when he didn't hit it, you're just like, you're John Wayne Gacy, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just, <laughs> let's give the context that because I think that this really, really matters. Quaid is in clown makeup for the half full an hour, tw- 30 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he does not have significant dialogue until maybe 24 minutes into the movie. But that dialogue, he's doing a John Wayne impression at one point. Uh. He's doing um, capital C little lowning clowning. And it's not great. Um, even when he's punctuating himself with his honkity horn, there's a couple moments where you see him visibly, physically fumble for the horn. Yeah. Uh, which doesn't help the timing, fellas. Like, let's let's maybe take a second crack at this. Yeah. I, I enjoyed his clown shoe walk. I, I felt mm-hmm. that the, like, aggro... <laughs> size 26s work on some level but i think it's a knowing that it's him in there yeah like if you compare this to beetlejuice which is like the you know this is the um basis for this performance i think and it's so much better than this and so much better timed and that's uh, a good catch yeah i I I wouldn't have thought of that but yeah like that really feels like he's doing an unconscious impression i just yeah i like there was a moment where he sort of like kicks his way out of the trailer and there's a long too long pause because the timing is never quite right Mm and like the editing is always sort of like a beat off of what would work for what's on screen and uh i just muttered to myself Nice fucking model. Eh, eh, because I've seen Beetlejuice like a million times. And I was like, oh, this is what you want to happen is that it, it like it's not whimsy. It's just weird. Mm. And the mm-hmm. other thing is, and let me ask you guys this because I'm not the demo for this. But like, I think a lot of this depends on how charming and hot you find Deborah Winger at all. Never mind in this guys. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It's not my bag. Like, I got nothing against her, but this is not for me. Yeah, I I don't have a, a, a strong opinion about okay. Deborah Winger. But what we've got here is sort of a, a, a three-way triangle of people with energies that just don't complement <laughs> each other no, at all. No, they don't. Winger, like I said, she's she's kind of the, the you, you put it well, the, the manic pixie dream winger arliss howard looks like john ritter or early Duchovny uh-huh. as straight man but he's so slow burning everything and such a repressed dork that there's just nothing there and then quaid is trying to be over the top for the first third and then just kind of settles down and does normal quaid things thereafter and it's just like three ingredients that absolutely don't belong on a plate together it's like steamed pumpkin sushi rice and chocolate sauce or something yeah (laughs) marvelously hideous uh yeah as a horny american um if i need winger you know i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna go looking for other deborah winger than this like no matter how you know captivating and and pretty she might be like 
there, there are better sources for that. And it, I don't know if it's watching this for the first time after the, uh, after garden state helped us to diagnose this plot element really mm-hmm. well, uh, that makes it mm-hmm. rankle or just the fact that it, it, you know, it just it just reads like bad arty college boy fantasy. Like he's not objectifying her, but she has to fuck in the morning and she has to fuck at night. She has to fuck on the roof and she has to fuck on the canopy. She has to fuck on the table with or without the leaf. And she can fuck in the ground. She can fuck outside. And like, yep. and, and and she's an artist and she doesn't care and she cooks for him and like nobody has to worry about anything. It's just delightful and like and, uh, yeah, pick something that's real for me. Yeah, anything. And and she's introduced with a long, languorous, uh, she's sunbathing on the roof of the trailer, and we have to pan up her legs very, very slowly to establish the important plot element that she's uh, wearing an ankle bracelet because uh, she's on house arrest. And then we've got to linger on her legs for 20 seconds because, you know, horny Americans have needs and must be serviced by the, by the movie making industry. There's nothing wrong with it. There are dozens of us. Dozens! But then what's she doing, folks? Oh, my God. She's reading a paperback of Stephen Hawking. And then later, even though she's got kind of an accent and she wants to have sex with a boring dude, she wants to go to dinner theater or the symphony. It's so zany. See, she's a poor person, but she likes stuff that classy people like. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh. And as usual in film, the production designer's idea of what poor people have in their homes is like <laughs> way off that it's like, yeah, that like <laughs> mid-century chrome finish dinette set. Mm-hmm. It's like three grand. Like, what do you know? Your 2,500 no. square foot mobile home that like, yeah. it's like you could fit eight TARDISes in there. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and you know those are bigger on the inside than that sorry hey. <laughs> um but so just kind of like on the 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 pixie thing so they they glenn gordon karen and vince gilligan go to this effort to make her seem you know intelligent and ethereal and spiritual and not just a lust object but then the whole thing is just like well i thought i'd fuck my husband's brother and we'd all get over it and then she sits there trying to turn on her brother-in-law while the firefighters are singing Duke of Earl and then Dennis Quaid's licking, you know, his tongue is just worming out of his mouth. And there's this like two minute scene of like, I own the Deborah Winger. You don't own the Deborah Winger. It just, it just seemed like such a fucking dumb take for a movie in 1970 that if you're, you know, 1993 and you've, you know, Glenn Gordon Karen's got this great record of writing fizzy, moderately empowering dialogue for women. Vince Gilligan's not adult. And we've still got to just have this thing. It's like the beefcake snarls at each other over who's going to own the thing. And you're like, uh, I don't care how good the doo-wop is. Yeah. And I guess you could make the argument that the film is trying to satirize that idea, but it fails. So like, yeah. I'm not sure where that argument would come from. Plus, she seems like the kind of free spirit dick only exists in movies and only in movies does she end up married to arliss howard like i know they're married in real life don't at me but (laughs) it's like there's no way like she she would have cut the thing off with some hedge clippers and been on her way yeah there's a very classic movie thing of like you know the sort of the jessica rabbit roger rabbit uh sex vibe i guess is what they're going for but 
I think not only it does it not work uh, for the kind of vibe and energy reasons that we were talking about, the movie doesn't know what it wants to be about or what it should be about. I think you Agree. were both dead on when you were like, this should be an X-Files episode. And the great thing about an X-Files episode is there's these other two characters you can do stuff with when it turns out that you don't really have 48 minutes worth of material. <laughs> right much less two hours worth of material. Or you don't like the people it's about um, either. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And 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 what is this movie called? Wilder Napalm. Why? Because it's named after the boring repressed guy who has maybe two watchable minutes in the entire thing. It's not named after, you know, the Dennis Quaid character. And what the movie should be about, if it were going to be worth a shit, would be Deborah Winger's arc. Right. Right. Like, let's let's empower her. Let's show her do something instead of spending an hour and a half watching the world's most repressed photomat clerk not even do anything interesting in the photomat. Yeah. Have sex in the photomat. Come on. You like it's Chekhov's gun. Yeah. (laughs) Especially because she explicitly says, let's have sex at your work. Like. And there's like oh, a huge sign on, that's like come back later that covers the whole front window. And also also that mall looks yeah. deserted because a circus is parked there, so who fucking cares, as it were. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So anyway, this has been an episode of Script Doctors, uh Wilder Napalm edition. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that uh Vince Galligan or Gilligan, you burn. Oh, <laughs> It is safe to okay. say that. It's safe to say that here. I will also note that th- this podcast seems determined to return me and Jeb to Louisiana by any means possible because their actual last name, Napalm, is uh, from Dr. Napalm, which is going to be Dennis Quaid's like, fire-starting Letterman thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but their actual last name is uh, like Foudriant or some other Cajun-sounding name. Yeah, oh, yeah. Real, I think. <laughs> Look, we didn't hear any Zydeco, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take the W. No, yeah. Sorry, I, I did not <laughs> I did not mean to correct you in the sense that like you weren't right on the mark and you're absolutely correct that there was no Zydeco. <laughs> that I mean, honestly, that's the more important thing here, really. I love you like a big love corn. So again, a rare note of positivity. Yeah. Uh, in this instance, a note pleasantly not played on an accordion. <laughs> um, I want to be a little more positive too. That there's you've you both mentioned this long scene where Quaid does Quaid things, uh, trying to attain the object. Deborah Winger. We have possibly neglected to mention that this all takes place in that most whimsical of settings, a miniature oh. golf course. And I was struck both times I watched this by the following. Has any, not just actor, has any human ever looked more at home in a pair of pleated khakis than Dennis Quaid? The pleated Avenger. He, yeah. What did his face do the first time somebody showed him a belt with like a little metal, you know, decoration at the end? (laughs) (laughs) He solemnly got out his deck shoes. (laughs) no socks <laughs> and said yes i will yes, yes. <laughs> and i was a child of the twill <laughs> it was a way of life <laughs> and i thought as well cuffed as another 
<laughs> oh boy. <laughs> All right. So look, I, you, we can do some more positivity. We have, we got to dip into the negativity here because we got to do this segment. It is the contemporary reviews. Yeah. You'll be perhaps unsurprised Oof. to find that a movie that grossed eighty four thousand dollars does not have a lot of reviews still online. <laughs> uh, really, all I could find was Janet Maslin and a couple people from uh, E. Maslin is, uh, she's trying to find some positivity, but uh, she has to concede up front. Somewhere on the cusp between the inspired and the flat out unreleasable, there is Wilder Napalm. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere uh, indeed. And- she says, uh, it takes a while to get past the realization that the whole film will be trying to sustain this level of whimsy. <gasps> and uh, and then her her somewhat you know positive line here is, the characters may be wildly nonsensical, but there is some core of earnestness to them, particularly to Ms. Winger's madly exuberant Vida. There's also a surprising tenderness to the film's little romantic interludes, even the ones that bring Vida and Wallace to a loony-looking miniature golf course that catches fire when they kiss. But then in E, we have uh, from Ty Burr, really only one line you need from his review. Wilder Napalm is all charm and no substance. He's half right. And then further from E, Owen Gleiberman writes, If you have been longing to see a cross between Sam Shepard's True West and Stephen King's Firestarter melted down into a surreal sitcom, then Wilder Napalm is the movie for you. The central question raised by this strenuously gonzo comedy isn't who's going to get the girl? It's who on earth greenlighted this project? Still, <laughs> considering what a sky-high folly it is, Wilder Napalm is oddly watchable. Winger once again proves she's the most sensual actress around and also the one with the worst taste in roles. Quaid tosses off insults with hambone enthusiasm, and Howard has a Charles Grodin-esque super dweeb charisma. If only the movie didn't keep piling on telekinetic explosions. As a metaphor, however ironic, for Grand Passion, fire begins to lose its sexy luster when it's reduced to a repetitive special effects bonanza. Yeah, can't disagree. The fact that uh, Ebert doesn't have a review of this one, <laughs> that he was just like, nope, <laughs> it really tells you something. And it's not anything all that good. I can't think of the times when I've been like, hmm, there's no mention of this on RogerEbert.com except as a line in a career retrospective and thought that bodes well. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Bonus shout outs for dipping in the true West which I've read, by the way. Nice. Uh, you know, I, I was I was impressed by that from uh, Mr. Mr. Gleberman. Um, <laughs> I thought the um, Groden dweeb line was really good. I was like, oh yeah, that's that's what it is. Yeah. Though when I saw that, I was like that that pegged it better. I was trying to think of what his. I mean, it's hard not to think of him as uh, what's his name from Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, uh, Private Cowboy. Yeah. And uh, and read his intensity that way, uh, just because that that facial cast of him in that role are so iconic to me, at least for him. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, just I, I, I just have to name this. And I'm sorry if this is uh, um, offensive or, or ill-timed, but as a prequel to a beloved HBO <laughs> program, this just does not work for me. Um, I just I just can't I just don't see the dots connecting. It's because of the dollar it. signs. It, it's an Arliss joke. Oh. I'm very sorry. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate to tell you this, but if he didn't do it, I was going to have to. So thank you. 
Yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, the thing that threw me is he didn't pronounce the dollar signs. So, I mean, how oh. do I know which one he's talking about? Okay. Right. All right. Like, if you guys are going to do that, we're going to move on to the review of the movie. We need the straight up rating. Chris, did you have a, a number rating for this film? Um, uh, uh, you know, from from one to ten, uh, I have a profound appreciation or, or a profound affection uh, for garbage. Um, but this this is a straight five for me. I'm not mad that it exists, but it is not a fun watching experience. Wow, that seems high. Oh, I'm a very generous grader. We'll we'll see that later. All right. Oh, yeah. Where where are you, Sarah? Um. I mean, it just kept reminding me of way better movies and shows and parts and performances. I wasn't as angry at it as I have been at other things that we've watched, but I don't know. I'm not mad, but I'm real disappointed. This is a, this is a three for me. I, this is not, I was not about this at all. So three. Not to be cute, I was going to split the difference there between you two, uh, not, you know, planning, but I, I had gone with four just because, I mean, Deborah Winger is Deborah Winger and it's a thankless role, but she's good at it. Uh, I think there are a couple of Quaid moments that, that he lands that are fun. I mean, we said this before, it's nice to see movies that aren't like Holocaust Diary or The Avengers, you know, like something that's sure. just sort of bizarre and in, in, in the middle and just that experience alone kind of ups it a little bit, but uh, it still takes away more than it gives. So for yeah, mm. yeah, so somebody did make a a very perverse decision to give people probably what do you think eight million dollars, ten million dollars to go make this mm. based on a script that they had presumably seen. That <laughs> it's hard to argue that that wasn't a better time. Yeah, yeah. I would actually rather watch an hour and fifty minutes of that meeting. Then watch this again. <laughs> yeah, actually, just like a, a two hour like video podcast of Glenn Gordon Karen having to explain every decision he made would be totally engrossing. <laughs> and it would be called, no, this isn't my cop rock. Uh, should we should we yeah. rate the Quaid? Yes, we should move on to Quay Qua Quaid. Chris, this is where we're going to measure the uh, the Quaidity, the, the essence of Quaid in this film. Right. Uh, you've seen enough of him, I think, to appreciate when he's at his apex as a, a performer and a man. <laughs> How do you feel he did? <laughs> uh, yeah. How do you feel I'm, his I'm, pleats did here? <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm just going to say it. As, you know, as a middle aged straight guy, I, I could have seen a little more Quaid in this. There was um, no Quaid ass. Yeah. No, no. Was there even one scene where he was untucked? much less shirtless, I don't think that there was. So I, I think you've got to rank the the Quaid in two different categories. One is Quaid in clown makeup. Mm. Uh -huh. um, and I, I really did not like his clowning. So uh, I would give that uh, probably about a two. When he comes out of the makeup, he gives us this hint because he kind of does this grin thing at Deborah Winger two or three separate times. But his face is kind of like lost a little charm over the years, I think. And it's kind of turned into this sharky grin. And I think hints at a Quaid that, that we could have seen where he kind of plays a, a likable psycho instead of getting trapped as kind of a leading man. And so those I, I kind of liked, and I would give that probably about a six and a half. Hmm. 
Okay. Okay. Well, I'm not good at math, so you, you'll have to average that, Sarah. Okay. Four and a quarter. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Check out the big brain on Sarah here. <laughs> hey. You're welcome. Just for that, you got to go next. Oh, fine. Fuck it. Okay. Um, for me, like the, his clown stuff is too menacing too often. And there is that glimmer of the, the sharky grin, the, 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 the smirk when he's taking her to the, to hear chamber music. And when he's, you know, rolling up next to her on the street, you do get that, that slyness. But the mm-hmm. rest of his character, even when he's out of the clown makeup and he's ostensibly, you know, fighting for her and fighting for his brother and his future for, I guess, like he decided to take the direction. All of this is informed by events in your childhood to mean just be an eight year old who has gone through puberty because mm. so much of, of his, you know, his charm, his anger, like is, is petulant and childish and, and dumb. And, and so it just effaces the charm. Uh, so I, you know, maybe a three at the most for those, those sharky glimmers, but probably a two as well. Okay. Jeez. So two and a half. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. Well, hey, we're going to do math here. <laughs> hey. This is why you have so many decimal places to play with. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> okay. They put a calculator right on my phone. I keep coming back to Chris's comment about him being miscast and like just the misconception of the role overall and then Quaid in it. And now that I've invoked, now that I've said Beetlejuice three times, I can't get it out of my head. (laughs) I just think Michael Keaton or someone like him who has a little less foxy bonehead thing going on would be a better choice for this. Um, mm. The clowning, I didn't dislike it, but I also felt like this is not a person who out of clown drag is going to be wearing a, you know, Jim Walsh stripey button down and khakis. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So a lot of this is not Quaid's fault. So while you do see a lot of Quaidy things, and I think he was cast in order to provide the biggest contrast with our list non-dollar signs howard as the brother i heard it that time okay (laughs) (laughs) did you also watch numb three years yes Uh, that is exactly how i pronounced it for years thank you you have to oh you are three years yeah okay i got you um i did not Anyway, he's pretty quaity here, but he's also not very good, and he doesn't belong in this movie. And pyrotechnics department aside, I'm not really buying the chemistry between him and Deborah Winger and everything that Jeb said about an eight-year-old who went through puberty. So, I mean, I think this was probably made on the strength of his being in the credits, but I'm still only giving it a five. Okay, and we would also be remiss if we didn't point out that the uh, his performance in here was once again sponsored by. <laughs> That's right, everybody! It's cocaine, cocaine, the co-star of choice for Dennis Quaid. Yeah, his um, 
I, I think we would also be remiss if we did not note that he, there's a dance he does in this that is exactly the same one that Brad Pitt does in Burn After Reading. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which, knowing the Coens, might actually have been a deliberate... <laughs> yeah, could have been. Uh, ...note. Yeah, this was not this was not a success, I have to say. <laughs> we were not waiting for a girl like this or a film like this. No. That... Uh, can we talk about that for a second? <laughs> can you talk about Foreigner? I know you can talk about Foreigner. <laughs> okay, first off, fair. Second off, fuck you. Third off, fair. Uh, <laughs> I want to know so what your this... take is. I want you to well, share it. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so this is a 1993 picture. Uh-huh. Is that song not six or seven years old by this time yeah at least i think that was an 84 joint like are we supposed to think yeah. it's the mid 80s it's very weird yeah i don't think it's a throwback i think it's i yeah i don't know it was just a very weird thing to hear uh in 2021 when i watched this but i think it would have seemed like i mean what was the biggest hit seven years ago now like if, if you made this now would it be like Imagine Dragons Radioactive, and that would be the big sex jam. I don't know. It just did not work and Ugh. felt really ham-handedly inserted. Yeah. Yeah. Still better than all the doo-wop. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know why that was there. Glenn uh, Gordon Karen loves it. It's all through moonlighting. Like, whole chase scenes set to run around Sue. It's just him. Ah, uh, well... Uh, asked and answered uh, this is one of those aspects of the movie that like if they had just pushed harder on it and just let it be weird instead of cutesy yeah i, I wouldn't have minded it like i like doo-wop i like i'm an i'm an old man <laughs> I, I like doo-wop i like barbershop <laughs> quartets my sister-in-law is in one my dad was in one no, I mean, I like it, too. It has a place, but, like, I maybe it's just my experience as, as a moonlighting head of, like, uh, oh, you know, here he is again. Okay. The man. <laughs> I mean, it, fair. But I just thought it was one of those, like, th this doesn't really work, but he just wants it in there. And so he's trying to make it, um, what's the word? Diegetic? But, yeah. But yeah. it can't be because it's, like, it's a fucking barbershop quartet and they're volunteer firemen. Like, okay. But if, if you just are like, shrug, I'm doing this. But it, it felt a little apologetic sometimes. Like the weirdness just felt like it can't just be weird. And let's add these other little bits of weirdness. And let's have her highlighting a cigarette. And I'm like, I really, I don't think you should light that. I don't think you should light that. Like I was preoccupied with the safety. <laughs> like it's a cigarette. Yeah. There's other problems. I don't know. I didn't like the way she was highlighting that cigarette. That that bothered me a lot. And and I'm a, I'm a bigger fan of inhalants than probably, you know, most podcasters, but I just seemed inapropos that's to a, me. That's a bold claim. It's, it's that metal and hardcore background, I'm telling you. It's paper bags and uh, paper bags uh, so, and nail polish remover. Yeah. Exactly. I feel bad. I've been almost unrelentingly negative. I'd, I'd like to be a little bit more positive. So can I ask both of you two questions yes. sure, to try to get to some positivity? One, background here, um, Jim Varney is wearing different novelty shirts throughout the picture. Uh -huh. I found them to be an absolute clinic. 
in yes. the novelty T-shirt of the early 90s uh, uh-huh. you know, oeuvre. Um, so either what was your favorite of those or what was the one that you wished you'd seen but didn't and is therefore probably on the cutting room floor somewhere? I did not write down what any of them were. I enjoyed all of them, but I was waiting, really, really seriously waiting for like the full bird Ayatollah Asahola shirt. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm actually a little surprised that we didn't see the cocaine and Coca-Cola script shirt. Ooh. Um, yeah. Yeah. But my favorite was try burning this one with the American flag, which actually took me a minute that I was like, what is he t- <laughs> try burning the shirt? Like, and why in this movie? And then I paused it and was like, oh, got it. Yeah, that thing that's everywhere that my brain no longer registers anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and God bless you for pausing it to figure out what the shirt meant. Yeah. Uh, I was just desperate to see a rough, tough, and in the buff, co ed <laughs> naked, fill in the blank shirt. And I didn't, but, uh, you know. We would these, also these accept new dude surfwear. <laughs> yeah. Chris, I'm going to tell you right now. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Check your mailbox in five days, my friend. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, look for some selfies in your mailbox in six days. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. All right. And and before we go, where can people find your stuff? Oh, we're going to go ahead and put it in the show notes, but go ahead and tell us now. Uh, yeah, I, um, I do a podcast called I Don't Even Own a Television uh, with the brilliant J.W. Friedman. Uh, you can find that at I Don't Even Own a Television dot com. Nice. Don't look for me anywhere else. I'll find you. <laughs> fucking look for me. <laughs> Who is this? Next time on Quaid in Full, Undercover Blues with Legacy Florida Boy, MC, and the other half of the I Don't Even Own a Television podcast, J.W. Friedman. In the meantime, get that rider mower off your fun bits, get up and go check out the show notes, and follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod. And hey, I know you like Dennis Quaid movies, so get some Dennis Quaid music and deep textual analysis over at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaid in Full. Quaid in Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? Know where your emergency exits are? Keep your head down and sign up safely wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. They're gonna put me in the movies. They're gonna make a big star out of me. They're gonna put me in the movies And all I gotta do is Magnet